manslaughter over the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a film set in 2021. The film's armourer will also be charged. Both face up to 18 months in jail if convicted. Helena Hutchins was killed when a prop gun Baldwin was using during a rehearsal for a western, Rust, fired a live bullet. The BBC's Sophie Long reports. Helena Hutchins, who was 42, was said to be an exceptionally talented cinematographer. She was on the set at the Bonanza Creek Ranch in New Mexico when the shootings and deaths depicted on the 19th century western they were filming became all too real. Alec Baldwin was holding the gun that discharged the bullet that killed her. He now faces two charges of involuntary manslaughter. Armourer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed was in charge of the guns and ammunition on set. She faces the same charges. Alec Baldwin's lawyer said the decision distorts Helena Hutchins' tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice and that he had no reason to believe the gun was loaded with live rounds. The United States has hit its $31.4 trillion borrowing limit, setting the stage for a standoff between President Biden and the Republican-controlled House. The Republicans hope to make the White House accept spending cuts. It requires an act of Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit. The BBC's Samira Hussain reports. The U.S. government is no longer able to borrow money to pay any of its debts. If Congress doesn't address the debt limit swiftly, America would default for the first time in history. Most believe the financial consequences of the U.S. failing to pay its bills would be catastrophic. And yet many consider it a real possibility, given just how divided Congress is. For now, the Treasury Department will use extraordinary measures to avoid a default. With the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning, those are likely to be exhausted sometime in June. And finally, Hong Kong's unemployment rate has eased for the eighth consecutive month, dipping to 3.5% as new official data showed the jobless rate for October to December period inched down 0.2 percentage points. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Well, good morning, one and all, and a very warm welcome to you. It's uh, Friday, 20th of January, and not only is today Friday, TGIF, but it's also a short day, the eve of the Chinese New Year holiday. And our very best wishes to you all. But first, we've got some work to do. I'm Richard Harris, and this is Money Talk, and here are your business news headlines for today. Central bankers stay the course on interest rates, and that means they're going up. U.S. stocks dipped as traders weighed the latest central bank chatter. Treasuries stayed lower and the dollar fell. Lots of rumbles as the U.S. debt ceiling row gets underway. And good news in Hong Kong as unemployment dips to 3.5%. And rich people in Davos continue to talk about poor people. Well, we have a good slate of guests for you this morning, some of them quite global, although the first one is very close to me, sitting right next to me here in Broadcasting House. That's Mark Mickelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. And then joining us live from no less Uruguay is Andrew Ferris, who's the CEO at Cognos, Cognosis Advisory. Uh, Andrew's normally here with us in Hong Kong, but uh, we'll find out why he's travelling in a minute. And live from Sydney, we have Toby Lawson, who's Director at Stratton Advice. And if you want to catch up with Mark, Andrew and Toby, don't forget that we have a great app, the uh, RTHK On The Go app. It's free, and if you download it, you get not only us and the podcast, but also a lot of news. Anyway, let's have a look at the markets. Uh, U.S. stocks pulled back from session lows as some investors judged a three-day slide had gone too far and traders mulled over the latest 
Fed speak. The S&P 500 index recovered after falling more than a percent, buoyed by gains in tech names like Google, Apple, along with healthcare stocks. Netflix earnings are just out. They were quite a lot below expectations, but paid subscribers have soared by 67%. So shares have jumped 8% on the news. But it ended uh, a little bit down. The S&P fell half a percent to 3,909, and the Nasdaq was down 1% to 10,852. UK was down 1% and that finished at 7,747, while Europe was down nearly 2% to 4,094. Joanne's Nikkei was down 1.4%, 26,405, and yesterday Hong Kong stocks finished slightly lower. Uh, worries about recession came through, Hang Seng dropped just a tenth of a percent to 21,650. Shanghai Composite rose half a percent, 3,240, and Shenzhen gained 0.7%. On the currency markets, we've seen a little bit of weakness in the dollar, fell 0.2%. The euros rose. The euro rose to 1.08. British pound uh, rose to 1.24, and that's 9.7 to the Hong Kong dollar. Hong Kong dollar to the pound, I should say. Japanese yen rose to 128.42 per dollar. And the Chinese one is trading at 6.78. On the bond side, Treasuries remain slightly fragile on interest rate concerns, and the yield on a 10-year Treasury has moved up three basis points to 3.4%. Brent uh, is now at 86.25 US dollars a barrel, and gold was up a little bit at $1,933 an ounce. On the news front, central bankers are saying that they're going to stay the course on interest rate increases in order to cool down high inflation. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde warned that further big rate rises lay ahead. Eurozone rates have remained lower than the US and the UK, even though inflation hit a high of 10.6% in October. The rate rise warning was echoed by Leo Brainyard, who's vice chairman of the Fed, who said that U.S. central bank had more to do to get inflation closer to its 2% target, even if rate rises came at a slower pace. But from the market point of view, Jamie Dimon, who's chair of J.P. Morgan, thought rates would rise to 6% because there's a lot of underlying inflation. He was also pointed towards China not really being an inflationary force anymore. The Fed's currently targeting targeting 4.5%, which is the highest in 15 years. U.S. inflation, 6.5%. So maybe 6%, uh, Jamie Dimon, may not be too far out. The U.S. is now bumping against its current federal debt limit of nearly 31.4 trillion U.S. dollars. The limit's also used, often used as a political football between the opposing political parties. Janet Yellen previously warned that the US government would run up against the debt ceiling, which is the country's legal borrowing limit, on Thursday. That's today. The US Treasury has begun taking extraordinary measures to meet its obligations, like restricting funding into pension funds in order to pay interest on its debt. Once those various measures are exhausted, a partial government shutdown may follow, and we'll be talking about that later on. Hong Kong's unemployment rate fell to feed 3.5% between October and December. It's now fallen for eight straight months. The government said there was an improvement in the labour market, especially in construction, retail, transportation and education. The removal of social distance measures by the government and a resumption of normal travel between Hong Kong and China were cited. Finally, one man who won't be uh, too upset uh, is J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. The board of his company has left his pay at 34.5 million US dollars for 2022. 
Well, Mei Meishan San Harsh, at least he won't be too much affected about inflation or the debt ceiling. It's currently 8.11. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, we have our slate of guests this morning, uh, Mark Mickelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Andrew Frey, CEO of Ignosis Advisory, who is on the line. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Andrew, you're in Uruguay, I understand. Absolutely correct, yes. Is that business or pleasure? Uh, both, <laughs> and which is absolutely great. I walk a lot looking out at a beautiful seascape. I can tell you, I'd rather do that than any other office. But anyway, on the other hand, yes, I'm here very much in business, although Uruguay is my, effectively my second country in Adela. My wife comes from Uruguay. A lot of the families here, we have some property, so I'm enjoying both sides of it. Well, we're very honored to have you on the show. Uh, it's always nice to have a, a correspondent from South America. Anyway, first of all, gentlemen, why don't we talk about interest rates? Because... Uh, the central banks keep saying they're going up, they're going up, they're going up, and yet the market's been pretty sanguine about things over the last few weeks. What do you think, first of all, Andrew? Well, uh, it's a very simple bank of another uh, calculation, and that is, as it stands right now, with inflation at 6.5% and Fed funds between 425 and 450, real interest rates are minus, I repeat, minus 2%. Now, real interest rates are meaningless for people in general, but they're pretty meaningful when it comes to look at the trajectory of where the Fed would like to see inflation, which is effectively roughly at 2%. And therefore, if real interest rates are going to increase and go to a positive, roughly the same rate of increase of GDP at 2.5%, yeah, we have some way yet to go. In other words, I'm looking for inflation dropping down at half percentage points in the next four months and interest rates going up by half percentage points by the same time, in which case the two things will cross and real interest rates will be actually zero. In other words, we will be entering really, let's say, positive monetary policy. As it is right now, we are still back at negative interest rates. So that's where I expect interest rates to be. But Andrew, we've had stubbornly negative real interest rates for quite a while. Uh, you actually think they're actually going to cross? I actually, I don't think I'm expecting them to close, because otherwise the whole exercise is going to be completely meaningless. Remember, real interest rates are indicative. And I was nobody gets up in the morning and says, oh, good God, real interest rates is minus 2%. Let me go and borrow some money. But over a period that started in year 08, okay, to now, nearly 16, we were 13 years plus, okay, real interest rates have been consistently negative. Well, that really works through it. So now, real interest rates will have to be consistently positive, and that means inflation will have to be significantly below the nominal rate of uh, the nominal uh, level of interest rates. Remember, once interest rates hit where Fed wants them, it is there whilst inflation goes down, and with my lips, as Robert De Niro would have said, stays down, and stays down for perhaps a year. Fed is not going to do the same thing again. Inflation goes down to 2%, and hey, we are off again. No. We're all happy. Inflation goes down to 2% and stays there. Okay. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what we're hoping. But, Mark, at the moment, uh, Europe, I think, is printing around 9, 9.5% nine uh, inflation. UK was 10.5, latest figure from the US, 65 That inflation is pretty stubborn, isn't it? Uh, 
Yeah, and it's a it's an it's a big issue. It's a big issue for for companies and for executives, and so are interest rates, because in borrowing, whatever the real or or negative interests are in terms of in terms of how it affects them, it, it affects their their psychology and whether they're going to borrow and and how they're going to invest going forward. It's just a little bit cautious because of that. I'm going to bring in Toby Lawson now, who's director at Staten Advice. Good morning, Toby. Good morning. Good to hear from you. You've um, you've changed houses recently, I see, and um, uh, as life moves on. But I know you keep a very close eye on the markets, and this whole discussion about interest rates and inflation is probably also pretty close to your heart too. Yeah, I was just uh, listening in, uh, um, and I think uh, I think one of the most interesting elements of this year, when you look at the earnings season coming out of the US, is whilst sales appear to be holding up reasonably well. Uh, there are very pockets of so it's the cost side of the equation which probably uh, if you're reflecting the cost of interest rate and um, uh, regardless of real versus nominal um, the cost side of the equation for a lot of corporates this year are going to be challenging and so I think as 23 uh, comes through the impact of inflation even if the nominal figure will come down quite sharply due to base effect and and and, and due to a reduction in prices across some of the complex um, essentially, companies are going to be tightened on the profitability side of the equation, so earnings will be impacted, and therefore what we'll be looking for is to see how much of that impacts into the labour market in terms of reducing cost, and therefore how much the Fed are nervous about obviously keeping the lid on inflation over the medium term, because once supply chains are taken out of the equation, energy costs are taken out of the equation, it's the labour market that's probably the most interesting for the Fed. And if you look at last night's jobless claims, there's still very, very tight labour market conditions in the US and also around the world. So um, I don't think the Fed are done. And I think, uh, I think to Anthony's point, I think they're going to sit on it for, uh, even when they get to their level of uh, comfort on the rate. So it looks, uh, gentlemen, a fairly gloomy picture. Andrew, uh, your percentage guess on whether we're likely to have a recession, say, by second half of the year? IMF and the Fed calculating the probability of recession. Really, they don't understand what the probability is. Probability is an event divided by total events. Look, if somebody says we have a probability of 25% of recession, first, I want to know what recession means. Two quarters back-to-back with negative or year-on-year negative uh, GDP growth. Well, define your terms. And the second point is, is what does it mean 25% if next half year, okay, uh, we are still not in recession, what does it mean? 25% we are going to be in recession and the other 75% will not be in recession? Plus the fact, to calculate a probability, you need to have repeated numbers. And of course, every single period of potential recession is completely different. So the Fed and the IMF have absolutely nothing except stomach feelings. Well, you may be actually... Able to answer a question I've often thought about. We have this standard recession criteria of two quarters of negative growth. But, I mean, is that really recession? Because we've had those dipping in from time to time, even over the last few years. Is recession not where the economy really slows down, high unemployment, uh, and the economy is not really growing, stagflation, that kind of stuff? 
I leave it uh, you know I don't like to, to sprout too much uh, I absolutely refuse to calculate probabilities that are meaningless okay like the probability of the United States going to war with China whatever that means it's complete nonsense anyway for me recession is terribly old-fashioned year on year negative growth full stop not quarter on quarter back to back annualized that also is completely meaningless incidentally I am a mathematician and statistician and my hair falls off when I hear annualized growth rates they are meaningless Completely meaningless. Well, it's lucky we're not on television then. Good luck to them. Um, Mark, uh, who uh, knows quite a lot about hair falling off, if you don't mind my saying so, what are your CEOs saying about uh, uh, whether they think recession is going to come around the corner? What, what's happening, and it's, you can't generalize because it, it varies a little bit, but both, uh, both North American and European companies, a lot of their, a lot of their executives are worried about slowdowns, whether it's called a recession or not. So there, what this means, in effect, is one of the things it means is putting more pressure on Asia as Asia recovers, especially as China recovers. But at the same time, some of the issues that have just been mentioned, such as worries about, about employment, about wages, whether you have inflation or not, because people have left the workforce. Some of them are coming back, but some of them aren't. And those that are coming back or those that are still there want to be paid a little bit more. And so the pressure pressure grows. So we're happy about the uh, the lifting of COVID restrictions and the possible opening up of the economy. But at the same time, these other issues are there. And can they respond in a way that will be effective for the company? I've come across a, a couple of small businessmen recently who are having, you know, this is a classic uh, manufacturer in China and sell in the U.S., uh, having difficulty, you know, their clients are getting more difficult in the U.S. They don't want to pay up. If you're selling to Walmart, they're not going to give you the money. And this is causing quite a lot of difficulty in, in their in their businesses. I mean, you wonder whether that's not going to continue. It's it's happened in Asia, and again, I don't know how widespread it is. And when I'm my, my information is based on on executives talking about this, but this just came up last week in a meeting about receivables and about uh, them not getting paid by by some of their smaller suppliers because they're they're worried and despite despite the the good news that we've seen at least going forward there there are a lot of issues there still toby you've got a lot of experience sort of uh, india australia australia is one of these uh, countries which i think went for decades without uh, actually seeing a recession what are people saying down there yeah i think uh, there's no doubt that in australia that um, you know the sensing that uh, the, the good times, if you will, of, uh, of low borrowing costs uh, are fundamentally shifted. So we're in a sort of seismic shift away from that. We know that within the equity market that probably um, the PEs and the valuations are pretty high and tight in Australia. I think the, the couple of things that benefit Australia is fundamentally, I think it's it structurally still got a lot of capacity. I think during the pandemic, uh, interestingly, from a consumer's perspective, it's estimated the consumers saved around $400 billion over that period. And so despite the higher interest rates and the, and, and the increased cost of borrowing, particularly in a, in a heavy mortgage market like Australia, it feels as if it's even at this level of interest rate that there's, there's not as much mortgage stress or there's not as much financial stress as would probably be expected. Um, so I suspect in Australia, structurally, um, we're going to slow, um, but I think um, uh, the tailwinds are still there structurally in, in, in the economy to, to absorb uh, some of this negativity coming from interest rates and inflation. So Australia's probably a bit in a sweet spot. I wouldn't say it's, it's going to, to do it easy, but I don't think it's a, it's a huge amount of risk at the moment. 
Well, Andrew, we do seem to have a bit of a conundrum at the moment because, uh, I mean, we were talking a moment ago about some companies having difficulty, but if you go to many markets, you tend to find that there's quite a lot of activity. There's low unemployment, um, people are consuming. Um, is, it, is it sort of um, uh, whistling before uh, Rome falls or, or whatever it is? Are, are we actually looking at some very good times just before some difficult times or, or do you see maybe a, a more easy fall off? Hello, Andrew. Sorry, who, who, to whom is this question? Andrew. Is this question addressed? Andrew. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a tangentially but parallel answer. I absolutely love the defense sector. And if you want to find markets in which the outlook is unbelievably bright, okay, and incredibly good, okay, uh, buy into defense. And we have defense sectors not only in the United States, which of course dominates the world, but they are good financially sound and uh, potentially investable defense sectors in Japan, in South Korea, in India, and surprise, surprise, even in Singapore. And why is that? Because following the Ukraine war, the picture has changed absolutely and utterly, and even Germany, that never spent any money on defense, is now about to spend as if there is no tomorrow. And that is reflected practically everywhere in the world. I'm not talking about small increases, I'm talking about major increases, and one of the leaders in that is Japan. It has been all very quiet and forgotten, so yes, there are a lot of markets in the defense side that are having big smiles on their face. I know this is morally perhaps indefensible, but that's the reality of the situation. Yeah, that's interesting. That's going to please all those uh, ESG-type investors. Uh, Mark, let's have a few uh, words uh, about the U.S. Uh, debt ceiling here, because uh, clearly defense spending is going to have a part in that as well. Yeah, well, everything we know about polarization and the situation in the U.S., it seems to be politically as polarized as it has been since the 19th century, since just before the Civil War, even before my time. And and that's that's what we're seeing now. And, of course, what's just happened in the House of Representatives underlines that. Does that mean they're not going to reach an agreement on the debt ceiling? I hope not. I hope they do. But at the same time, it looks like it's going to be much more difficult. And we're seeing this fall out in other issues, too. There's just been a select committee appointed on uh, on China. And Hong Kong is affected as well. And their number one priority is managing uh, investment into China by U.S. And, and affiliated companies that work with U.S. companies. That's not good news. They may be limited in what they can do, but this is what we're seeing. So what it causes is uncertainty. In the end, it may all work out, and maybe we're 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 over overdoing our our concerns. But at the same time. It's it's the most worrying I've seen in in memory in the U.S. at least in that sense. But uh, Toby, this is political brinkmanship, isn't it? We all know they're going to come to some sort of agreement at the end of the day. They're just going to rattle some sabers, aren't they? Yeah, I, look, I think so. Um, you know, we've, we've had many of these type of uh, you know brinkmanship uh, um, running chicken uh, in 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 the Congress around debt ceilings. So I suspect um, that will resolve itself, at, uh, albeit uh, with as much political damage as uh, each party can inflict on the other. I think going back to Andrew's point about uh, defence, I think it's really interesting because it actually has an impact not only in terms of budget uh, and fiscal spending of government, but also on inflation. And uh, a couple of factors that probably keep inflation high is the amount of money uh, that governments and, uh, and countries will spend on securing energy. 
uh, in the new geopolitical paradigm and, of course, increasing defence spending uh, to secure borders and to allow for a high, heightened level of geopolitical risk. Uh, and then also spending money in terms of re, uh, refactoring supply chains uh, in terms of trying to bring more domestic manufacturing where possible. Uh, and I think these are going to be some of the factors that aren't weighted into inflation expectations that previously um, you know, may not have been factored in when you see that the headline inflation is going to come down over the course of the year, but some of the persistent cost pressures will come from these particular issues. And Andrew's point on defence, I think, is really relevant. Well, of course it was Reagan's defence spending that actually caused a lot of difficulties in Russia, but um, uh, anybody throw an idea in on this because uh, it could be... I mean, the US... Obviously, very strong economy. They're going to have issues with the with the debt ceiling, but they're going to get through that. But if we do see debt, uh, defence spending increase around the world and increased spending, there could well be some countries uh, come out of the blue that have some intense difficulty. What do you think, Mark? Uh, we we saw. Uh, I'm just thinking of the collateral damage that could occur with uh, countries starting to spend high on something and them not being able to follow. Sure, and and they're. There probably are some like that. I mean, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew uh, mentioned Japan, which he's right about. There is, there's quite a defense establishment there, despite having just a self-defense force. But at the same time, they also had high debt, and although it is domestic, they have some issues as well as well going forward. And in fact, some of the higher spending for defense is very unpopular in Japan, and it's um, it's weakening the Kishida administration uh, right now. So. There are political issues, even in in fairly strong companies, uh, countries, let alone some of the weaker economies. Andrew, do you see any uh, unknown unknown issues out there as a result of uh, uh, spending starting to increase significantly in certain parts of the world? I'll, I'll start. I'll start with the known unknowns. Uh, it is very interesting to note that China specifically spells it out, okay, word by word. We know that the defense spending competition was one of the key factors that finally sank the Soviet Union, and we are not going to go down that way. And I was uh, very, very aware that the United States may try to put them into, the, into a race, and because they know what happens if they join it. Although, in the case of China, they're being a little bit unnecessarily cautious, because if one takes the external debt of China and also takes the external exchange reserves they have, China is still one of the major net lenders to the world. You know, net lenders never go bankrupt. They have a terrible habit of never going bankrupt. Net borrowers, or such like Argentina around the corner from here, or Brazil, or for that matter, Russia, do go bankrupt. Well, Andrew, so we've had a... <laughs> that, all that sounds fairly, fairly gloomy, but um, I think uh, with uh, uh, our views from our our three esteemed guests. We've had a pretty good run-through today. But I'd like to thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. Mark Mickelson, Chairman of Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Andrew Ferris, who very kindly joined us from Uruguay, CEO at Ignosis Advisory. And Toby Lawson in Sydney, Director at Stratton Advice. Just a few uh, futures uh, and market open. Uh, we've got Korea is uh, actually up a, a tad today in terms of the futures. Um, the Nikkei is down a little bit and Hong Kong looks as if it's uh, uh, up a little bit, about 1% on the futures as well. So maybe it's a bit of a dull Friday too. Anyway, we're heading off to the weekend. I'm going to say farewell to the Year of the Tiger and welcome to the Year of the Rabbit. 
May I wish you and your families a very happy Chinese New Year. Gong Fa Choi. I'm Richard Harris, and this has been Money Talk. And now the uh, half-hour news with Barry O'Rourke. The Bar Association says it would be undesirable for a complete ban on overseas counsel for all national security cases. The comments came after Beijing's first interpretation of the national security law, Victor Laws, Victor Dawes, who was re-elected as the chair of the professional group last night, said he believed it would be more acceptable to the public if there were more flexibility to allow foreign barristers to join some national security cases. So far as the other NSO cases, that doesn't involve any secrecy or confidential information. I mean, there are quite a few. And in those matters, I think we can actually adopt a wait-and-see approach. We believe that if you preserve the flexibility, in so far as impression is concerned, in so far as um, trying to explain the matter to the public, in so far as public perception is concerned, we believe that it will be conducive to the administration of justice and the rule of law. The United States has announced details of its latest package of military aid to Ukraine, which it says is worth about $2.5 billion. The Pentagon said the assistance included scores of armoured vehicles and support for Ukraine's air defence. Earlier, several European countries pledged to step up military aid. The Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, General Christopher Cavoli, said tanks alone would not help Ukraine win the war. With the question regarding Western tanks... I think it's clearly the case that Western technology is outperforming Russian technology. However, I would point out that it's not just tank on tank, it's the whole system. It's the supplies, it's the logistics system, it's the maintenance system, it's the target finding capability, and all of that comes together. So the complex of an army is much more important than any one of its individual parts. Moscow has again warned the West against supplying Ukraine with weapons that could be used to strike Russia itself. It follows reports that Washington will announce a further increase in military aid at a meeting in Germany later today. The warning came from the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Naturally, the very discussion of the acceptability of supplying Ukraine with arms that would allow strikes to be delivered on Russian soil is potentially extremely dangerous. This would mean bringing the conflict to a new level, which of course will not bode well from the standpoint of global or pan-European security. An ally of President Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, has again warned of the danger of nuclear war should Russia be defeated. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, has said any attempt to destroy Russia would mean the end of the world. The United States has hit its dollar-borrowing limit, setting the stage for a standoff between President Biden and the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. The Republicans hope to make the White House accept spending cuts. It requires an act of Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit. The BBC's Samira Hussain reports. The U.S. government is no longer able to borrow money to pay any of its debts. If Congress doesn't address the debt limit swiftly, America would default for the first time in history. Most believe the financial consequences of the U.S. failing to pay its bills would be catastrophic. And yet many consider it a real possibility, given just how divided Congress is. For now, the Treasury Department will use extraordinary measures to avoid a default. The American singer-songwriter David Crosby has died at the age of 81. He was a rhythm guitarist in the rock band The Birds in the 1960s. He then also enjoyed commercial success as part of the folk rock group Crosby, Stills and Nash. 
A Hollywood actor, Alec Baldwin, is to be charged with involuntary manslaughter over the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a film set in 2021. He faces up to 18 months in jail if convicted. The BBC's Sophie Long reports. Helena Hutchins, who was 42, was said to be an exceptionally talented cinematographer. She was on the set at the Bonanza Creek Ranch in New Mexico when the shootings and deaths depicted on the 19th century western they were filming became all too real. Alec Baldwin was holding the gun that discharged the bullet that